Well, good morning, church family. If you are a visitor online with us this morning, we extend a warm welcome to you also. Well, it's only with a slight hint of bias as a result of the excellent Bible reading from some of the members of one of my favorite small groups here at Canterbury Gardens that you'll be well aware we're looking at John chapter 18 together this morning. The previous five chapters Jesus spends during the Passover feast preparing the disciples for what was to come, for the events that would quickly unfold and leave them confused, alone and scared. He'd washed their feet, told them a new commandment, that they love one another. Given words to comfort, inspire and remind them in their time of need. Jesus promised them the Holy Spirit, told them what to expect in the future. And he prayed for them, and not only for them, but for all who would follow after them. Well, chapter 18 starts like a freight train. It's unique to find such a narrative in all four Gospels. The betrayal, arrest, trial, Peter's denial, and Jesus being brought before Pilate are recorded in some detail in all four of the Gospels. So the obvious question is why? Of all the things that all four Gospels writers could share about Jesus and his life, why is this period so important to them? As we go through this chapter together, that question I would ask that you have in the back of your mind, because it's likely God is trying to get our attention, don't you think? It's often in the stressful, trying times of life we all go through where we can learn something of where our heart is at. If we're willing to be honest with ourselves, it's during frustration, when we're under pressure or perhaps in conflict with someone, that something of our true self comes out. My wife read a book a number of years ago and it was described like this. What's down in the well comes up in the bucket. It's during times of stress, pressure, frustration that the true heart is exposed and sometimes it isn't all that pleasant. It can be as simple as wanting to get somewhere and being stuck in traffic. I confess that's me at times. Perhaps the kids have been pushing our buttons all day. Work is expecting more of us than it should. There's a disagreement with your spouse, money pressures, a relationship fracturing, or any other number of issues. Some significant, others perhaps not so. Is being stuck in traffic really up there with the list of trials in life that I should lose my cool over? If I'm honest with myself, there are times when what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. And as I look back on those times, it isn't always pretty. James 3 describes it like this. The tongue is like a forest fire. All creatures can be tamed, but who can tame the tongue? He goes on to say, can salty pond produce fresh water? James points to bitterness, jealousy and selfish ambition being at the heart of what kind of water, fresh or putrid, we produce. John chapter 18 reveals each of these human traits, warts and all. We'll see bitterness, jealousy and selfish ambition welling up from within the hearts of those who interact with Jesus. This is a chapter that we could comfortably spend many weeks going through as we examine the final hours of Jesus' life. But the plan for today is to deal with the entire chapter. So what I'd like to do is to give us a helicopter view of what's going on. In this chapter, Jesus interacts with a variety of characters and we'll soon learn more about them. As the pressure on Jesus ramps up, his responses are measured, deliberate, 
and at total odds with those around him. Nothing takes him by surprise, catches him off guard. He's not some naive martyr caught in the moment. No, he's an authoritative saviour. As I've read through this chapter the last few weeks, it is the tragic blindness of those talking to him that has stood out to me. I'd like to share that with you this morning. The first character we meet is during Jesus' arrest. Judas, a follower of Jesus, a disciple, one of the twelve, a man who sat under the most powerful, charismatic man to have ever lived. Judas, who saw the dead raised to life, multitudes fed with a loaf and a few fish. Here's a man who sat under teaching such as no one had ever heard before, as one who had authority, we're told. A man who walked, talked, ate and communed with God incarnate. A man who was devoid of faith. A betrayer who in the end would take his own life out of sorrow. Here's a bitter man. His hopes and dreams were not realised. What's down in the well is finally brought to light. Here we witness the reality that not everyone who calls himself a disciple is truly born again. Not everyone who cries, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, Jesus says there are those who have been involved in ministry for many years for him. And he will say, I never knew you. Even those who had prophesied, cast out demons and done many incredible things for him. In Matthew 7, Jesus says that ultimately, over time, the storms of life come. And as those storms come, the true foundation of our faith is exposed. The bitterness of Judas's expectations not being met led to an action that no one except Jesus could have ever seen. Well, as we move on in our chapter, from verses 12, we're introduced to Annas and Caiaphas. Though Caiaphas was the high priest at the time, it was widely regarded that his father-in-law Annas was the real power behind the role of the high priest and they are thus both recorded as being high priests at various occasions. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that five of his sons were also high priests after him. The concern of these men was keeping the letter of the law, not the intent. What do I mean by that? Well, God asked people to rest on the Sabbath. But they took that to mean that you couldn't do nothing on the Sabbath. In fact, the purpose of the Sabbath was so that God could provide a physical rest for the people, but also provide an opportunity for them to come aside and commune with their God. They washed their hands ritualistically. They didn't eat certain things. They said the longest prayers in public. They dressed themselves to look righteous. They judged others by their own standards, placing expectations on others they themselves failed to meet teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. I remember hearing a podcast from Chuck Swindle where he shared that when he had decided to begin a new ministry in a new area, he preferred to start from scratch rather than work with an existing church congregation. The reason, as he described it, was that most well-established churches were full of grace killers. Well-meaning people who had lost the wonder the joy, the freedom of experiencing grace in all its fullness, and had started to introduce rules, regulations, 
policies or perhaps standards of dress. They began to judge others based on how children behaved or seeing their form of what church should look like forced on others. I wonder when do we judge others? When, if we were really truly honest, if Jesus was standing right there in the midst of our conversation, would it really be what he was concerned about? Annas and Caiaphas were both bitter and jealous of Jesus, leading to a fear of losing control. Their heart is exposed for a complete lack of knowledge in the one true God who they were supposed to be teaching the people about. These men were leaders of the men who taught the people, yet they're blind as to who it was that stood before them. Next, from verses 15 on, we encounter Peter, a man who showed noble, though flawed, courage in the garden when Jesus was being arrested. A follower who was caught up in the moment. And here is a sense of hope in the midst of sadness for many of us who read this chapter. Here in all its glory is Peter's humanity. His fragility is exposed. A follower of Jesus. Another disciple who falls short. As Jesus said, they would all fall away anyway. So in what, what way is this array of hope? Well, I think it's a ray of hope because we know the rest of the story, don't we? His insistent denial of Jesus and make no bones about it. He was insistent in his denial. One of the gospel writers tells us that he called down curses upon himself in denying he even knew who Jesus was. His insistent denial of Jesus and subsequent realisation of what he had done leads to what? What does it lead to in Peter's life? It leads to genuine sorrow, a sorrow that led to repentance. And it's in this that you and I ought to find great comfort and hope in. Whether we're Christians or not, it's this that we can take a hold of. The issue is not whether we fall short of what we would like to be, of whether we are confronted with our failings, because what's down in the well eventually comes up in the bucket in all of our lives at some point. The real question is, Will you bring these things before him, acknowledging your own need and the free gift of complete, total forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus Christ? Luke says in his gospel, after Peter's denial, that the rooster crows. And at that moment, Jesus is able to turn and look through a window and see Peter. Their eyes lock and Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. I confess I've experienced that look before. I think most of us have at some point. Some of us like me, perhaps more often than others. I'm not talking about the physical look so much as those times when God kind of, God's spirit kind of taps us on the shoulder. When we know we've said or done the wrong thing, when we go away feeling terrible for what we've done, how we've responded in a selfish manner at times, got our own way at the expense of someone else, made a promise and not kept it, or perhaps right now you're at the end. Where do you turn? Who could possibly understand? How do you make amends? How do you turn yourself around or get yourself out of the bind you find yourself in? Perhaps you see a life that's been wasted, relationships that are scarred, 
Is there bitterness, hurt, anger? Or perhaps you've been wronged and you just can't let that go. Loneliness that makes you wonder where to from here, particularly in the season that we're in. You know what Peter does? As he runs physically from the scene before us, Peter, in a spiritual sense, ultimately runs towards the Saviour. His response was to recognise his own shortcomings and by faith embrace the message of grace that Jesus offers. His response was not one of mere sorrow, but repentance leading to a life committed to following Jesus. Now that, that doesn't say that Peter was perfect. We know he wasn't. The scriptures record that he, he had several times when he had to be pulled up. Being holy, not perfect, is the goal of the disciple of Jesus. Having perfection as your goal leads to all kinds of heartache, legalism and disillusionment. But seeking holiness will lead to a true appreciation of grace, what God in Christ is doing in you. It leads to dependence on him, not self. It draws us to see others as he does, not as encumbrances to our own agendas. Well, of course, the other major player in this chapter is Pilate. He's a politician. His primary concern was his own power base. Though he could see the problem, he was not prepared to do something about it. It wasn't that he was weak or too afraid. In fact, in a few years' time, he would be called back and put on trial himself in Rome for seeing that a group of Samaritans were put to death for an uprising without he himself affording them a trial. We see here the selfish ambition that James speaks of. There was nothing to warrant the death of Jesus, and Pilate knew it. But he was a pragmatist and believed that this would best shore up his own power base. Pilate asked the question, though, in verse 38, that is really at the heart, I believe, of this chapter. Of every one of us, whether we actually realise it or not, whether it is verbalised or even understood as such, each one of us must address the question that Pilate asks. In verse 38 there, Pilate says, What is truth? What is truth? So as we conclude, why do Matthew, Mark, Luke and John detail these final few hours? Perhaps part of it is that we might be confronted as each one of the many characters Jesus encounters in this chapter with these words, what is truth? Because all of these people thought they had it. They all thought they knew the answer to the question. For Judas, the truth was this. Jesus is not who I want him to be. I will not submit. I'm my own person. My God is, well, we know. Judas's God was money. He was a thief. He comes across as that bitter man that James describes. For Annas and Caiaphas, the truth was, we're the ones who are in the right. We will not listen or open our hearts to what is before us. Perhaps there was too much to lose. Certainly there is a refusal to submit to any authority outside of their own. Make your goal holiness, not perfection. And have that in mind as you lead and minister to others. It was their own lack of relationship with God that leads to jealousy of Jesus. They are leaders. 
but they didn't have Jesus's popularity, authority. They didn't have crowds following after them when they walked down the street. So much so that they would go out of their way to incite the crowd to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. For Peter, the truth was he fell short. His courage had failed him. Yet in his heart, he knew the truth of Jesus's word. I am the way, the truth and the life. Faith in the one and only Savior produces fruit that fans the flame of the gospel in the early church. Does that not encourage you? If God uses someone who failed so profoundly, could, how could he not use you and I? Someone who millions of people through the ages have read about, and God takes him and uses him mightily in his kingdom work. For Pilate, the truth was he wanted authority, power, and position, so much so that even a warning in a dream from his own wife and a burgeoning understanding of what he was hearing was not enough to change his course. His own selfish drive and ambition stood in his way. Well, what about you, friends? In the here and now, what is your truth? If you are truly honest with yourself, what is your truth? Are you like Judas, lost, disillusioned, bitter? Perhaps like Annas and Caiaphas, so tightly holding on to false hope because you are too jealous of what you have in order to consider change. Refusing to believe what's in front of them. Why hold so tightly to what you cannot keep? Surely the season we're in at the moment points to that. How unsure so much of what we hold dear really is. Perhaps you're like Pilate, who could see some form of truth to the words of Jesus, but you're too invested in your own ways to submit to him. Or like Peter, when what's down in the well comes to the fore, even though our courage, sound judgment or faith sometimes fail us. Though sometimes fear of man is greater than it should be, there is a foundation built on Christ that will restore us to himself. John has recorded the truth throughout the I am statements of Jesus. Even what we have here, Jesus did many other things that are not recorded in this book, but these are recorded that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you will have life in his name. What is truth, friends? Here is what John records. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes shall not hunger. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Jesus said, I am the gate, the door. Whoever enters by me will be saved. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever comes to me will live even though he dies. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus says, I am the vine. Whoever abides in me will bear much fruit. There is no ambiguity 
no blurred lines, no gray areas when we talk about the message of the gospel. There is absolute truth and it is to be found in Christ. Friends, will you hear and now take him at his word? Can't help but read chapters like John chapter 18 and wonder how could the people who interacted with Jesus not see him for who he was? And yet, the same message is true today. There are many people who have heard the truth, who know the truth, but still stubbornly refuse to accept. If others could look into your hearts, what would they find? Sometimes the truth is we and those around us get those little glimpses as it pours out of us at certain times. But only in Christ, being led by his spirit, can we know and experience the grace and power of God to overcome. To be in the here and now what he calls us to be. Oh God, I pray that you would teach us what it means to be humble followers of Jesus. Pray for those who are listening, who are far from you, that you will call them to yourself. Those who are burnt, who are tired, who are worn out that you would strengthen them, that your spirit would meet them and comfort them in their needs. Thank you, O oh God, that Jesus came for our sakes, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that we can come to him and know we are accepted in your presence. Thank you for these good things in Jesus' name. Amen.